0: Welcome back to On the Balance Sheet, Season 3, Episode 2. And our producer, Dana, has mentioned to me that this is actually our 25th episode to date. So really excited about that. And today's actually going to be a quite unique episode, and I'm really excited about it, Zach, as you and I, as well as our colleague Managing Director, Joe Kennerson, are going to kind of answer several questions, which I think are really on a lot of bankers and, and folks from credit unions' minds as to how this year may, in fact, play out. And we might play a little bit of point, counterpoint, and be deviled advocates as we go through these conversations. We have our own chance to quasi-weigh in on what's going on in the marketplace and maybe even give a few predictions that hopefully age well, but maybe they won't. So,
1: Yeah, time will, will certainly tell. And for the listeners, I think they're all aware last year we did this with our president, Matt Penzac, didn't do questions, did a little more themes and we were just going back in the uh, the January of 2023 podcast that we had, talking about some of those. And you'll see some of those are still valuable today, I think. And he he did a pretty good job talking about the funding costs escalator becoming an elevator. Hopefully that's slowing down. Talking about liquidity is going to matter. That was, this is was before SVB, you know. by the way. A couple other things about inverted curves and some of the hidden risks in NII that I know have all played out. So he did a great job. Joe, no pressure. This year trying to follow in Matt's footsteps. But I think it's going to be a great episode. Again, a little different than having a guest on, but hope the listeners you know, t- have some good takeaways from this overall. Yeah, Zach,
0: that funding cost escalator looks like it's turned into kind of a moving walkway, if you will, yep. uh, at the top of a of a long, long ride up. But also, as we mentioned before, being joined by Joe Kennerson, Joe has the benefit of just being off of a trip to acquired or be acquired. The conference that took place a couple weeks back now, and Joe has some terrific observations. Joe, thank you for joining us and uh, very much look forward to kind of what was on other bankers' minds at that conference.
2: Well, thanks for having me, number one. And I, I want to start by saying that I think you guys are doing a great job. It's been fun to listen to this and uh, I'm excited to be back. So yeah, uh, a lot of, I guess, key themes from Acquire Be Acquired out, out in Phoenix and hopefully to you know, share a couple of those as we talk today.
0: Absolutely. So why don't we get kind of right into it? Zach, we've kind of thought through a handful of things that that are really emerging as we're several weeks into the quarter here. So we're all, you know, right in the thick of speaking with a number of financial institutions. And I'll tell you, it's just about every conversation is starting kind of and ending really with the general theme as to, hey, look, when will deposit pricing – pressure finally recede. When is it gonna end? So Zach, weigh in. What do you think? What are we looking at in terms of what are you working with and speaking and what types of conversations you having with your clients?
1: Yeah, it's it's the start of every meeting. We're kinda of talking about how we're still handling the consequences we'll call it of the COVID surge and the Fed going up five hundred twenty five basis points. So we're still kind of fighting that battle. And like you said, maybe it's more of a moving walkway now. Where things are slowing down, but I just came into the office from a meeting this morning. Locally, every meeting this week, the other five I've had, and all the other ones we've had this quarter, it's it's slowing, certainly. But there's still mix shifting. There's still some cost drift, some pressure, and we're just trying to play as much defense as possible before maybe the next rate cycle happens, whenever that is going to happen. And I think we'll talk more to that. But the sentiment I'm getting is that it's slowing, but it's still there. We still got to look at it, still got to model those things out, and play as much defense as we possibly can. I mean, Joe, what did you see out in, in your speaking?
2: Yeah, no surprise. This was one of the topics out, out in Phoenix. You, you really couldn't go into a session without hearing somebody talk about deposits. The question of, do we think deposit pressure is going to subside? Yeah, it's it's going to. Right? The real question is, when and, and how do we get there? And uh, that's largely going to be predicated upon the pathway from the Fed. I mean, if the Fed stays higher for longer, right, then we're going to feel some pressure in the near term. And the further we get from the last Fed hike, that's going to come, right? And then the question becomes, when, when the Fed pivots, at what pace it at, at what magnitude? And so at Aoba, Frank Ferone and I were, were lucky enough to, to speak out there and, and we we tackled this topic. and. I guess I'll respond, the you know, same way I, I did out there and, and share some data, right? Really kind of, you know, tackle this thing from a data perspective. And, and we're very fortunate here at DCG where we get to see so much of what's happening at like ground floor with the data. And we've got this neat system called Deposits 360. And, you know, we're collecting data from our clients. We've got almost 300 D360 clients. Not only do we collect a lot of data, but we get to track things like cannibalization and we've got this, you know, neat forecasting model with, you know, that our clients can can utilize. And so what we did out there is we simplified it and forecasted out two scenarios and extrapolated from there. So we started with a, you know, a higher for longer, you know, scenario and, and kind of did some some rate paths there and, and then looked to the, the futures market. Now, a month ago. The Fed funds futures market had the Fed cutting rates 150 basis points, which has walked back a little bit uh, today when we're recording this in the middle of February. I'm going to start on the nominatory deposit side and then, and then we can come back to CDs. So, in our higher for longer camp, and by the way, that's just the Fed not cutting rates, just keeping rates where they're at. Our solutions or deposits 360 is projecting nominatory deposit costs to go up another 11 basis points in the calendar year of, of 2024. Now, 11 might not seem like that much, but that's an all-in number. That's, that, that includes non-interest bearing checking. The starting point is like 105. So we are still seeing that pressure. That's, you know, we just lived that in January. I will say that within that analysis, a bulk of that is a continued shift in mix. Less checking, less savings, more in premium accounts. On top of that, we're forecasting non deposit balances to continue to go down. I mean, it's just 18 straight months, you know, at, in aggregate that they've gone down, and it's it's likely to to continue. And that both of those factors are, are gonna continue to to drive pressure on on deposit costs, at least in the you know, in the next you know, six months or so. In the FedFunds futures scenario that that we modeled out, we projected nominatory deposit costs to go down ten basis points. Right? But it's hard in a podcast to talk about that because you've got to visualize the curve, the pathway, right? Because that's a point in time to point in time. A lot of that is, you know, realized on the back end, meaning that the lag pressures are still kind of being played out. And so that all kind of amounts to the fact that, yeah, this we know that the first half of the year is still going to put some some pressure on the non deposit costs.
1: It, it makes perfect sense. And you, you listen to earnings calls, you read the transcripts of some of the bigger banks who report. You talk to the, our clients, certainly, in, a, in some of the, the data we have. A lot of similarities Meaning it's another quarter or two, probably, And obviously, to your point, well, if the Fed is here for four more years, it's going to keep going. But the Fed does start to change, that might be an inflection point. And I'm wondering too, Vin, if if we just kind of go to question number two on the page here, which was really, you know, how much deposit cost relief can we expect when the Fed does cut, or maybe if the Fed does cut? Because I think Joe, you were kind of getting to that in your in your response there, which is when they cut. What are the variables you're looking at? And how much do we think, and what are we projecting? I guess in, in in the data you're seeing.
2: Yeah, that was another key theme in in our presentation out in Phoenix. And the takeaway, there is that you know, deposit cost relief in a Fed easing cycle is probably further out than we'd like. And the concept is is pretty simple: we lag on the way down, like we lag on the way up. You see that in every cycle, right? And. You know, from a balance sheet perspective, liquidity levels are still pretty tight early in, in the Fed easing uh, cycle. Also, it's like there's some human nature built into that. I mean, think about the last two years, how hard banks and credit have fought to hold on to these depositors. There's going to be that that need to maybe lag on, on the way down. So, again, putting data to it, we... Um, We've got all this for the listeners if they're interested in, in getting geeky about, about this. But we, we looked at deposit rate paths in different, you know, falling rate scenarios. And we simply just showed like a down one, down two, down three, rampant. And what's interesting in the down one, and this is as of 1231, we're not really projecting much non deposit cost relief. A little bit, but not much.
1: So, so you're saying like 100 bips from the Fed may not see any cost relief. It might take more than four cuts.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's, and again, it's the timing of that too, because it's likely that we could live ne- times of negative betas. It's like, Hey, the feds, you know, cutting rates, but there's still that pressure, that added pressure that we're, we deposit costs are going down. So that, that concept of negative beta, and you're thinking about that from, from, a, you know, risk management standpoint is, is likely, but even in the down two and down three scenarios, another fed cutting rates, you know, 200, 300 basis points, those are going to be much different deposit and liquidity environments. We we know that. But even though if you look historically in, in in our forecasting models, like there's it there's that initial lag. There's that initial lag. And so you know, you talk about this really from the the point of, okay, what does that mean to to total margin and balance sheet strategy with obviously, you know, margin pressure is real and and then you know we even brought up the, the point that, you know, you think about you know the five-year point of the curve. We're living a little bit of a sell-off in the bond market, but the five-year point still seventy bips off its its highs in the fall. So I can envision some loan pricing pressure, you know, coming coming down the pike. So it's it's getting into the mindset from a strategy, you know, side of things of how can we get ahead of that deposit rate lag? How can we start having those conversations and preparing, you know, for that? And so like the whole theme of Building a Fed easing playbook strategically at Alco and pricing meetings has been like a you know a big takeoff in, in our Alco meetings this quarter. Just to try to be somewhat proactive and compartmentalize our depositor base and our and our product set to hopefully again get ahead of those those pricing lags.
0: Joe, some of those data points that you just shared with us, I think, are really really important. And it's almost like I want to repeat them for our listeners because it's you know we do have some. A ton of data, as Joe alluded to, and Joe said it so eloquently, but a couple main takeaways from what you just said was, look, at, we still probably are going to experience 10, 11 basis points of additional non-maturity deposit cost increase off of a base, which is already up over 1% right now. So like that's can be eye-opening. You know, we're still, by the way, even if rates were to go back down, the models are projecting that you're still going to see some runoff we're still in the tail end potentially of that covid surge there's still some money that's kind of laying asleep and it might wake up not a lot but it's still happening and you know the the other thing that you know in my meetings you, you hear and i've heard this over the years i've been here for two decades and been through a couple rate cycles but you hear well no we we lag on the way up and we cut immediately on the way down and i think there's a there's got to be some context placed around that cuz generally speaking no they don't No, they don't. And so this has significant ramifications, particularly on the budget side, as banks have really, the ink is now dry on most banks' budgets. It should be by now. In many cases, the banks I'm speaking with, they didn't budget any funding cost relief for 2024 because of a couple of those facts. I think, you know, I hate to be redundant, but those are really, really important takeaways for our
1: listeners. Yeah, Vin, absolutely. And I think you look at a lot of these models too, and more folks are liability sensitive. So you wonder too, well, are they liability sensitive because they have an assumption they're going to cut deposits right away, right? So can they help quantify that? Because to your point, I think all my meetings, everybody gets a good chuckle. We say, the Fed cuts in May, let's make it up, which right now I think is a coin flip, give or take, and that's been changing. Most people are like, maybe you get a couple bips here or there off something, but nothing meaningful. You know, it maybe it's a test the water on it, but they know it's gonna be a couple cuts, a couple quarters probably before they can really make any meaningful dent in there to, to Joe's hundred base point you know, kind of question. So I think that's a really important takeaway as well.
0: No, absolutely. I mean part of it too is this this ideal that you know we always come down immediately. Maybe that premium rate money market moves down a nudge, but everything else is still kinda of there because the other part of that is the human element. I mean, Folks have been arm wrestling to basically just maintain what they have, and, and we saw stabilization in deposits in Q4 on a relative basis. The outflow had kind of slowed down. There's there's clearly evidence of that in the industry, but at the same time, you sit back and say, "Well, I've already been borrowing. A lot of these banks have lost ten, fifteen, twenty percent of their non-maturities, and they've been borrowing to fill that hole. And it's like, do they want to keep borrowing? <laughs> so." It, it's a really kind of an
2: interesting time right now for a lot of these bankers. The other interesting piece on top of that, because you know, I've been spending time talking about non maturity deposits, which is the bulk of it, you think about the, the time deposit book. And you, know, you look back in last year, obviously, CD books you know, grew tremendously. What we found in the data is that almost half of the CD growth was cannibalization shifted from non deposits into CDs, and that and that's what took a big bite out of out of margin too. You look at it today, and bankers are, are kind of in a, a pickle right now, where the bulk of CDs are coming due in the first half of this year, and so and the average coupon, for, at least for what we see, is is under four percent. So that is built into budgets. We know that those costs are going to go higher. The pickle is that. The Fed's signal the pivot. The market's anticipating it. Wholesale rates have come down a little bit. At the time of this recording, you know, one year, you know, wholesale rates are around five percent. You know, the, and so the pickle is that like, oh, you know, how do I start moving my CD pricing down when I know I've got, you know, a lot of maturities coming due. The first renewals are the most important. And it's like, oh, so just thinking about the overall C D strategy, I think reconfiguring that. With this in mind, I'm hearing from more and more clients that you know, this year, I don't think this is a big surprise, but this year it's more about retention than growth. And so how do we reshape our offerings, you know, our product offerings to align with that? In other words, do I want to, well, here's a question. Where do I think I would have to be priced? Ask your team this. Where would I have to be priced on CDs? Just to hold the line, not to grow, just to hold the line, start there. And for most people, it, sh- it shouldn't start with a five, and, and also if like it's retention is a strategy, how does, you know, you know, how do you think about that? In other words, just having one CD special, is that the best way to go? I don't know if I'd want to, I'm going to reward depositors that are, you know, have a, a good banking relationship with me. Do I want to pay close to wholesale market rates on single source CD relationships? You know, so how do you kind of think about that dynamic when you're starting to try to posture for, for rates to go down?
0: Yeah, Joe, part of that D360 tool that you alluded to earlier before is that there's uh we have the benefit also of surveying the folks that use it. And you know, one of the survey questions was what are you anticipating for deposit growth in 2024? And to your point, where the overwhelming sort of takeaway is they were trying to maintain our deposits, retain them if you will. I think the answer that we got overwhelmingly was 0 to 2% is the expected growth for deposits and you know, I also think that's kind of interesting because I, I had a recent conversation with the head of retail at a several billion dollar bank. And we were going through a bunch of analytics and trends and trying to determine what the right number was for their forecast. And she came to me and she said, Vin, I, I got to tell you, all signs are pointing towards we're, we're going to shrink. And I go, well, well yeah, that's, that's pretty obvious. And she goes, I've never given my board a budget with a negative number. And she goes, so what – what do you What do you think I should do? I was like, Well, you can lie or you can tell them the truth. <laughs> so, it is it is obvious, and and that's a great point you make. Where you should start this conversation, which is a very important conversation as we go through this year. Uh, what rate do we need to be at to keep this money in here? Um, it's, it's really that's one of the things we're spending a lot of time on in these Alco meetings and using data to inform those decisions. I think actually, Zach, I think that discussion is a perfect segue for our third question of the day, which is when do we think margins may potentially
1: recover in 2024? It's a tough question because there's so many variables that Joe laid out, that you you laid out. But I tell you, a lot of things I'm, I'm looking at, and these are all dependent on where rates go, certainly. But I think second half of this year, you're going to see some some better lift on that. And that's not just because the Fed could be cutting, right? I think a big, big, big piece of this, and I'll throw the asterisk out there. Obviously, if there's a massive geopolitical event and a recession and a huge credit issue, like those are things that we have to deal with. But I'm just saying if, if things are still reasonably okay on that front, you get a lot of loan cash flow, folks, a lot of bond cash flow, in some cases coming back to us, that are going to be able to reset a lot higher. And it just takes some time and we're what two years from the start of the hiking cycle. A lot of folks they knew in the past, hey, when race start hiking, we don't want to go too long sometimes. So a lot of people did some swaps for two years or borrowings for two years, three years, and those things are all starting to come back. You know, too. So I think you're gonna see some lift. I'm hearing it from the bigger banks, I'm hearing it from some of our clients on that front. And then you get the deposit piece where obviously if that can help, then that's only gonna add some more benefit there. But that's as Joe said, that's super dependent on the short-term Fed funds rate and and how there's, I don't know if you agree or or disagree.
0: No, Zach, the way I think about it is the absorption of your funding costs or overall liability costs, you, you probably have fully absorbed that cost by and large as we enter the third quarter of the year. Joe talked about that sort of tsunami of CD promotions that are all coming through and some of them are at 3, some are at 350, some are at 4, but it seems like Fed stays still here. They're going to reprice up to some degree. But at that point, then there's sort of a de minimis you know amount of CD maturities for most institutions as we look through the data in the final quarter of the year, second quarter. And you know, this is all pretty intuitive. A lot of banks and credit unions were targeting maturities in the beginning of this year, thinking the Fed by now would be on its way back down. And uh, clearly we're not there yet. Who knows? It could happen. It may not. But it seems like at least that variable in terms of your overall funding costs, you're probably reaching its apex as we get into the third quarter of the year this year. Now, then the question becomes on the asset side of the balance sheet, can you get the loans on the balance sheet? And can you get investments at yields that are greater than existing portfolio? I think that's not a question that has an easy answer or solution for a lot of organizations. Joe mentioned earlier about the two-year point on the curve or the five-year points on the curve where a lot of assets can be tied to, they've now come back down. (laughs) And so I get this question all the time in my travels of late. Hey, Vin, should our loan pricing come back down? And I I almost kind of laugh internally because it feels like, yeah, (laughs) in theory, it it should come down, but you never got it up to where it should have been to begin with. So you're coming down off of a level that- was too low to begin with. So it just really kind of depends. You know, another variable for certain institutions is the degree of prepayment they're going to get. We're clearly seeing prepayment slow. So we have models which suggest here comes cash flow off a legacy three or four, 450 asset that's going to be repriced just by virtue of getting some early prepayment on it. That's just not happening. There's no real incentive for any of us to kind of go back to our bank and say, hey, I don't like my 2% mortgage. Give me a 6% mortgage. So these models, you know, Zach, you hit the nail on the head. These models are clearly, there's a lot of different variables you got to be very careful with. And I think three of the biggest variables are how are we going to price when rates go back down? How much of our core deposits are we going to hold? Or are they going to keep sort of sliding over to the other side of the balance sheet? How many assets can we actually get on our balance sheet What do prepayments look like? Any one of those variables can play a huge, huge part in kind of what this year ultimately looks like. I'm a glasses half full type of guy, as you know. I'm hoping that we get better margins, at least into the final quarter of the year. I'm looking at a lot of our models, and our models show lift. They show the levels of income improving. And that's interesting when bankers look at that and they say, well, that's, that's a good sign. It is a good sign. But let's not forget, you're just kind of working your way back to income levels that you had a couple of years ago. You're still not there, per se. So a lot going on. I'll put it down that I'm hoping that we get better margins in the final quarter of the year. But there's so many things that influence that.
1: A hundred percent. And I think just to take a step back for our listeners, it's while the NII trajectory could be higher, what Vin was saying is there's three wild cards, at least. With prepayments and less cash flow, being able to recast higher. There's the what Joe mentioned in the first question: the non-maturity deposit cost drift, or the mix shifting, the migration that's still happening, that could dampen some of that. And then there's the can we cut rates fast enough according to the model? So I think there's a couple of variables there that you know, we'll we'll look back next year and see how influential those were. You know, certainly, but I think th- those are huge. And I think your point on the CD book: once you get through this, the first two quarters here. You're going to see a lot of, of CDs that went from – well, before this, they're going from threes up into the 455 range. Well, CDs today, they're not, 10 months, are going to mature in December, and they're going to go from five, hopefully, down to 475, 450. And that, that was Joe's point, I think, on the CD side is start chipping away there. The latter half of this year looks empty because all the CDs come and do in the first half are going to get pushed out there, and that's when you'll get some relief if you're disciplined and you've done the work on that front.
0: Yeah, the, the re-roll – in the latter half of the yes. year of this current role yes. that's coming through if if you will i know one of our other things that you know it's interesting the you look at the bond portfolio and the market sentiment with some of the media attention that's been given to the bond portfolio and specifically, you know, some of the unrealized losses in those portfolios. It seems like there's been sort of a, a negative connotation in that regard around investments. But I want to turn it over to you, Joe, because I, I think you you made a comment to me before. And I really want you to answer this question, which is why we shouldn't be sleeping on the bond portfolio.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've, I've talked about this with, with some clients and some webinars, and you always get a little shaky when you get to this topic because it's it's uh, it's probably an unpopular take, which is to don't sleep on the on the bond strategy for for this year. And the argument is clear; it's crystal clear in thinking about like why would I even be talking about a, a bond strategy? You know, because we've we're we're reeling still from you know the unrealized losses. You know, and and there's this thought of like okay. I'm looking to change my asset mix, you know, not add to, to investments. Or how the heck am I going to leverage or buy bonds, and, you know, with the curve that's this inverted? Or I'm going to have to utilize capital, leverage my balance, you know, and so I'm looking to preserve capital. So the argument is, is really strong against and it, and, and I think we all get that. I think there's also an argument to, to have a, a good conversation with your team at Alco about this. Because at the end of the day, you know when you're in an environment like this with a sustained inverted yield curve, you got to turn over every stone, okay. And by the way, I think your audience knows this, but we're coming at this from a completely independent perspective. We don't we don't sell bonds. It's just you know we're at the level of just let's just talk about it and just figure out if it's a, a worthwhile strategy. And so then I position it by okay, what's the argument for considering this and having having this discussion? Number one, the cycle. And you're not trying to be speculative, but as banks and credit unions, we generally I think we buy bonds probably different than most entities. Like we, we probably look at our investment book for like liquidity first, then interest rate risk, you know, and then and then earnings. And in that vein, we tend to buy bonds when we have a lot of liquidity, which is when rates are really low, right that's, that's fine. That's fine. this is generally the point of the cycle where you look back like, oh man I wish I would have you know padded, padded the, the book a little bit right um, and so I think that all is also leading to the fact that you know, nobody's buying and you know in some products you've you got wider spreads I've seen some leverage strategies the two year funding that have had hundred basis points of spread you know that, that changes on on the day of course. you can think of it also as potentially a strategy to protect against rates going down, although you're going to give a ton of spread up if you if you do that so the point I think here is that it's worth having this conversation, looking at it, talking about it. In most instances, at go, it's probably gonna get, you know, no, it's not gonna be there. but that's okay. that's the that's the healthy exercise and discussion worth going through. And if decisions, you know, no, then okay, good. That that was a that was a worthwhile exercise in, in, in our opinion.
1: I think it's a great point because there hasn't been as much conversation on it the last year because of some of the, the whiplash we'll call it or the the fatigue from unrealized losses, liquidity's tight, I'm growing loans, why would I use that? liquidity or capital to fund bond purchases but I think you know one of the things is that whether or not you're just buying bonds to maintain liquidity minimums you're pre-investing um, or even leverage strategies those all have have merit to at least model out and look at it may not be for you to make the leverage work you may have to put on you know a little bit of length on the funding side to get the spread you want you may have to use swaps different conversation for our listeners but that's a tool that most of our groups want to have in the toolkit. And to your point, if you want to do it to protect against falling rates, if you're truly asset sensitive, there may be no spread. It may be a negative spread to cash, which I had a conversation with a group this week on saying it's it's an almost an impossible sell. But some people see the merit. In it. You know, if you have a lot of capital, you have a lot of liquidity, it might make a lot of sense to do stuff like that. And I'm not saying this is for everybody, but your point, Joe, right, is you got to have these conversations. It's been a sleepy portfolio for a little while after the the binging of 2020 and 2021, and we, you got to reinvigorate that conversation because there's there, there's some reasonable things you could do there, even if it's just doing some pre-investment to get some of these yields. Because who knows if they're going to be here down the road?
0: Yeah, Zach. One of the things, if you're not careful, is you're going to wake up one day and you you know would have taken all your bond cash flow here and used it to fund loan growth because it seems so expensive to go out and raise retail deposits. And then you look at how much liquidity you now have. And again, for our listeners who may not be initiated, I mean, kind of our view is that you take the collateral, which you have, you take collateral on your balance sheet and use it to you know, pledge against borrowings in some cases. And you get to a place where you're actually not at a, a minimal level of collateral because you're redirecting cash flow into loan growth. And some of the conversations I've had with folks is that said, oh, look, it, I understand your budget. I understand your funding plan for the year, but like you're, you're getting to a point where you're going to have to add a minimal, at a minimum, replenish your, your cash flows. And so I've seen that conversation that's taken place a handful of times here of late and banks have said, well, oh, geez, that, you know what, we kind of lost sight of that. So it is important. Uh, candidly, I, I like that because now you know they're sort of sprinkling in some investments. Joe, you talked about you know, your main reason for having this conversation is the point in the cycle, which would suggest, just to be overt about it, that this would be the time to buy bonds. Kind of when the Fed is done, they're tightening. That's basically the time to buy bonds before rates start to move back down. That's Historically, that would be the precedent. So really, really important conversation. But that probably leads us to our fifth and final really pressing question uh, that most institutions are most concerned about and kind of hoping that it will be the panacea for them and their interest rate risk and their models and their net interest income projections. Will falling rates be the solution to the industry's recent challenges? Zach, I know you have a hot take. I'll give you
1: the best best consulting answer, which is it depends, right? And I I think... I mean Joe talked about it at length earlier. How fast do rates fall? How much do rates fall is the key. But I'm thinking if gonna do a straw man, if it's just the Fed's right and it's seventy five bips here or this year, a couple more cuts next year and it's slow, then it might be okay. Right? It might be a pretty good solution because you that, that might get the funding costs that might tip that, you know, into our favor. Maybe the asset side doesn't come down as much. You get that Goldilocks Steep curve, but I keep coming back to: Are we going to start trading the margin pressure for credit pressure? And I'm a, I hope we, it's a it's a Goldilocks, it's a soft landing. Everything's great. It's the mid nineties. Couple cuts from Greenspan, then we're off to the races again. No, I don't know. I'm a risk manager. You're the you're the glass half full guy. I'm the glass half empty guy. And I just keep coming back to: I'm not sure if it's a solution. It might be for 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 a period of time, but if this there's a very high correlation, right, with rates falling and credit issues or recessions, right? You can go back and convert the yield curves, look back over time with like Campbell Harvey's work, who, who's, I think it's eight out of eight when the three month treasury has inverted with a 10 year, you know, your recessions. If you look at the two versus 10, it's like 11 for 13 or something like that. So it's a very high correlation that falling rates, especially meaningful falling rates might help the margins a bit, but it's not good on the credit side. You know, I'm not sure if we want to talk about credit today, but I'm not seeing a lot at this point, but you certainly see one-offs of commercial real estate office space, multifam, the unsecured loan side certainly is a a challenge. You're seeing delinquencies at their highest in over a decade in some of those areas. So those are the things that it's a a panacea for the near near term possibly, Uh, but over the long term, it it worries me, Um, a, a, a lot lower yield curve.
0: Yeah, the credit component. We always talk about how managing interest rate risk is so important. You know, it's eighty to ninety percent of a institution's bottom line is the spread business, and it's, it's clearly the beating heartbeat of an organization. However, ultimately, that wouldn't necessarily submarine you. What submarines is the credit side? And you know, I was at a at an institution whose headquarters was in an office building uh, located in an area where there's a ton of volume. Major highways, and I went into that parking lot. This is a big building and a nice building. There was twelve cars in the whole parking lot. It was like a ghost town. And uh, actually, the main entrance I went up through pops me up on a floor, and then I just walked through—I don't know—thirty thousand feet of empty office space, and then finally got into where I had to go. That's not a great omen, uh, you know. I sat back and I said, geez, that." That that's just not good. And uh, so you're right. I think there are some things that can work their way through, uh, and hopefully it doesn't happen instantaneously. Hopefully it's a gradual thing from a credit perspective. I have banks that have some of that on their balance sheet. It doesn't seem like a lot of that paper is held kind of in the small bank space. It seems maybe it's more regional bank and some other non-bank entities, but there's a lot of uncertainty we lived through it before. Hopefully uh, it's not as brutal as it could be because that causes a real issue. Zach, you and I actually uh, consecutively were product managers for our capital planning tool. And uh, that tool really came into existence in the wake of the last recession. <laughs> and so we've seen it, we've seen it and it takes time. So I, I would certainly encourage banks to, uh, if nothing else, make sure they've got some capital planning in place. My guess is if we get some credit, and you're right, non-accruals, past dues, they're up. FDIC statistics uh, are demonstrating that. But when there's really been nothing for a long time, and then there's some credit issues, it seems like there's a ton of credit issues. Yeah, I I would definitely be on top of that. It's interesting because you always hear, well, geez, it's just a couple idiosyncratic things. and. I had a I had a, a CEO at a bank who in a meeting was talking to the one of the lenders and they said, well, it's just a one-off. It's just a one-off thing. And he said, is it still going to be a one-off thing in September of this year? What are you going to call it then if there's still an issue? So it's, you just don't know. It's it's like, how did I go broke? And it's, well, a little bit at first and, and then all at once. And that's kind of how it feels like in the credit space. So that is something. I- did say i was the glasses half full guy too didn't i
1: yeah it's it's yeah. on the record so yeah
0: but a lot a lot going on and and i think you're right structurally falling rates uh, you know will, will will be helpful but let's not forget what generally accompanies that yeah you just got to kind of keep your eyes on that
2: yeah i think um, Outside of the the credit piece too, and thinking about falling rates and what's asset sensitivity, what's liability sensitivity these days. But some thoughts to think about for institutions that do have like shorter term loan books, that are like, oh man, I wish all these loans were coming due today. Yeah, I think there's some things to, to think about and have in your arsenal and, and discussion-wise. Like, So the just the concept of discipline and, and loan pricing, easy for us to say, but discipline with options. And so I had a shop the other day talking about really tough for them to get good prepayment penalties in some of their commercial deals. And just working the, the menu, similar to what I talked about on the CD side, and having different pricing options for different embedded floors or, or prepayments and just thinking ahead of of protecting against maybe not the Fed soft landing down two or three, but like the hard land and that downside protection. I think it also weighs on the importance of, of being able to, to execute on hedging strategies, getting in, you know, getting your shop in order. And because we know that whenever it was late summer, everybody thought rates were higher for longer. It's like, man, when's the best time to buy protection? It's when everybody thinks rates are going to stay up for a while and the window shuts quickly. So having your, we had some clients that, that bought some floors, for example, and and what's the accounting, you know, the whole thing that, that goes around that and how you want to position the funding side of the balance sheet. So there's some healthy discussions to have, even if, as you're starting to eye, you know, falling rates down the road.
0: Joe, great point. I mean, having the ability to kind of leverage hedging, if you will, probably shouldn't use leverage because it kind of scares folks off, but utilize, you know, hedging. If your balance sheet calls for it, it's, it's critically important. There's no doubt about that. But I think that's a good place to end this and i really enjoyed this conversation and we thank our listeners hopefully you folks did as well and obviously thank joe and joe it is pleasure to be joined by you and, and to hear your insights because oftentimes like uh, zach and i our, our paths don't really cross you know we're we do get on a call once a week uh, as a consulting team and talk but uh It's great for you to join us. Thank you so much.
2: I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You guys are doing a great job.
1: Thanks, Joe. And hopefully for our listeners, thanks again for all the support. We hope you at least got a couple takeaways from this or at least maybe some different topics for conversation to kind of bring into your alcoves because that's that's what it's all about at this point. Thank you.
0: So that's a wrap. Thanks for listening on The Balance Sheet and uh, hope you'll check in with us next time. On The Balance Sheet is a podcast produced by Darling Consulting Group, DCG. All views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests are solely their own and may not represent those of DCG. All third parties are independent entities and are not affiliated with DCG. This podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not considered as advice. All views and opinions expressed are based on the information available at the time and may have changed based on current market and other conditions. For more information about DCG, please visit www.darlingconsulting.com or email us at info at darlingconsulting.com. Today's background music is provided by John Sib and Coma Media and can be found on pixabay.com.